All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Somebody was awake. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. All right. Oh, man, it's so cold outside. I'm glad you guys all got warm and came in here and joined us. It's just uh, so good to be with you here today. If you're wondering who I am, uh, my name is Gil Clausen. Uh, my wife and I and our family, we've been a part of Forest Grove here for many years. I've got a picture of my family in case you don't know who we are. So there we are. Um, we have four kids. Two of them are married, so that gives us six kids in total. And uh, they're all growing up. It just seems like yesterday we were like chasing them all over the place, like hockey, soccer, all that kind of stuff. And at that point in time, you're like, we're going like, oh, when is this ever going to end? And now I look back and it's like, where did those times go? Like, they just go so fast, you know? They're, they're gone. So those of you all my age, they're all nodding. They understand this, yeah. So anyways, we've been a part of this church community for a long time. Um, we're also Forest Grove missionaries, in case you didn't know that. We've been missionaries our whole lives, basically, while we've been here. For most of that time, it was with an organization called Youth for Christ. And we were involved here on mission, working with... Uh, reaching out to non-church youth. Uh, a year and a half ago, we transitioned to family ministry with this organization called Camp Oshkiti. And so now we work with marriages, couples, and family camps. And we seek to share Jesus with families and extend into family ministry. And actually, next weekend, uh, we have our couples retreat. So if there's somebody here today and you're going like, we need to get away. We need to invest in our relationship. If that's you, you can come talk to me afterwards and we'll see if we can get you in next week because there's room for one more couple. Um, other than that, we do all sorts of things. And my wife is going to be out back by the coffee area. We've got a little display if you want to know a little bit more about what we do with Camp Oshkiti and the amazing things that are there. Please come and talk to us. But that's not why I'm here today. Today... Um, I get the privilege to share with you, I think, what God has been laying on my heart. And uh, it's a topic that I've called chasing life. Um, life is crazy, isn't it? Like, there's so much going on. You, you could be in high school or college. You're trying to figure out, like, who am I? Why am I here? Who am I going to marry? What's life all about? What am I going to do? You're trying to sort out all of these things. You could be a young couple, like I mentioned. You've got kids, and it just seems like you're chasing these kids all over the place. It's like you're doing this left, right, and center, and you just don't know where things are going, and you're just some days feeling like you're completely out of control. There's work pressures, trying to hold it all together. Like, life is crazy. And then, the world is crazy, isn't it? Like, there's just weird things going on around the world. And it just seems like life is, like, chasing us all over the place. We have stress. And the questions are, why am I here? And what is life all about? Those are questions that many years ago when I, you know, when I was in college, I was struggling with that. And uh, God spoke to me in a couple of ways. The first was through this, one of my favorite TV shows, Magnum P.I., not the current one, it's not as good. The old one, the classic one, with Tom Selleck. Uh, and what I loved about it, he just lived Murphy's Law. It's like, 
if anything could go wrong, it went wrong for him. And I don't know, I just resonated with it. So there was this one night I'm struggling with, okay, where's my life going? What's my direction? And I watched this Magnum P.I. show. And in this particular episode, what was happening was there was this big, uh, it was like a race, a scavenger hunt. And they were racing, chasing around for the prize, which was a million dollars. And in the process of chasing around for this prize of a million dollars, people lost their integrity, they lost their relationships, they kind of destroyed their life chasing around after this money. And at the end, classic Magnum P.I. style, I think it was they ended up on the Golden Gate Bridge and they're struggling over this briefcase and they're pulling on it and it opens up and the wind comes and the money just like flutters all over the way into the ocean and everybody lost. I loved it. And then God said to me, okay, Gil, if you had a million dollars, what would you do? I'll come back to that a little bit later, but that's a question that I'm posing to you here today too. If you had a million dollars, what would you do? Because the answer to that question actually says something about who you are. Unfortunately, it was a couple years after that 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 song came out. I didn't like produce the song. I could have been rich and famous, but I lost it. Um, God also spoke to me through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at that a little bit here today, just ever so quickly. Now, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, who was the richest, wisest king of the time. In fact, God said to him, Solomon, I can give you anything you want. So Solomon thought about what do I want to ask God for? And he said, God, I would like wisdom. And God said, that was a wise choice. I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you all these other things. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a little bit confusing. And we're not going to like dive in deep. We're going to like take an overall bird's view of it. Because um, it's going to be fairly quick. But with all the poetry scriptures, you do have to be a little bit careful sometimes. Because you can't just pull one verse out there and just base a whole pile of things around one verse. Because honestly, if you did that in Ecclesiastes... There are some verses that say, like, everything is meaningless, life is hopeless, you might as well just soak it down with wine and just, like, get drunk. Unfortunately, there's a number of people in the world that live by that, but you can't take that out of Ecclesiastes because you've got to look at it within the light of all of Scripture. But God spoke to me through the book of Ecclesiastes. And it was like, I guess, in my opinion, it kind of is like, Solomon's take on what is the meaning of life. And he wrote like, it's like if you had this English teacher who gave you this paper at the end of the, or the, at the end of summer and says, okay, I want you to write a paper on the meaning of life. So Solomon, at the end of his life, sat down and this is what he wrote. So we're just going to read through some of these really quickly. Uh, the first thing, it just starts out with everything is meaningless. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all the hard work under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises, the sun sets, it hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south, turns north, around it goes, blowing in circles. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? This is so encouraging. Rivers run into the seas, the seas never full. 
Uh, everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, history merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. In future generations, no one will remember what we're doing right now. Yeah, it's, it's borderline depressing. It's a little confusing. You read this and you just kind of go, okay, what's up? Uh, and nothing is new under the sun. So I kind of found this a little bit interesting, but because we have phones, so aren't phones new? And then I saw this picture on the Facebook world just a, a week ago, and it's like, yeah, sure, the phones are new, but like the action that we do... <laughs> So 2016 versus 1916, everybody's still standing around just staring at the news. So maybe it is true. Maybe there are certain elements of things that are different, but ultimately when it boils down to everything, nothing is new. So Solomon chased after all sorts of things in his life. So first of all, he chased after wisdom. I, the teacher, was king of Israel and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and explore wisdom and everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it's all meaningless, like the chasing of a wind. And I pictured that, you know. And sometimes, you know, when you have little kids, it's like, sometimes like the wind blows and something's blowing in the wind and they're chasing after it, you know, they're trying to grab it. I haven't seen too many people my age and older chasing the wind because you kind of understand it's kind of futile to chase after wind because you never catch it. What is wrong can't be made right. What is missing can't be recovered. So I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the other kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly but I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. The increased knowledge only increases my sorrow. Doesn't sound too fun. He tried chasing pleasure. So here we have in chapter 2 the futility of pleasure. So he says to himself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too is meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. So here it is, you know, you could say, but I won't. And while seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during the brief life in this world. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there is nothing really worthwhile. So it's, yeah, we're going to move on. So he tried, he talked a little bit about work. We go further. He chased work even more. He said, I came to hate all of my hard work here on earth. For I must leave to others everything I have earned. 
Who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? They will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. So, I'm not saying hard work isn't bad. I know, like, we have Mennonite roots. It's what our whole foundation is built on. Hard work, right? We're going to get to a little bit beyond that. But Solomon did great works. He built great things. And at the end of his life, he's looking at all that and he's going, what's the point? And then he looked at life and how life isn't fair. And you know, we look at life and we go, life isn't fair. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. There's injustice all over the place. Why do we live here and poor people live over there? Why are we blessed with so many things? Why do certain people get this disease and certain people have health and live forever? Life just isn't fair. And so he says, I noticed under the sun there's evil in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. And he looked after, so he started chasing wealth. And he was very wealthy. And so in chapter 5, it goes on to this. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful. And if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up, and the matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And he goes on. The more you have, the more people come to you to help spend it. Your grandparents, you know what that's all about, I think. So what good is wealth? except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There's another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything's lost, and in the end, there's nothing left to pass to one's children. We come to the end of our lives naked and empty as the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, you can delve in deeper. He's, Solomon chases after all sorts of things. And you know, honestly, each of these things, knowledge, wisdom, wealth, happiness, money, they all give us satisfaction for a short time. Like, if they didn't, we wouldn't chase after them. But at the end of the life, when you back up and you're looking back, you're going, Sometimes, what is the point? What is it all? And you know, you can read, read through Ecclesiastes and you can actually get a little bit depressed. Um, but there's some truth here that I want to get to. Because like any good English paper, you have to have a conclusion. If you don't have a conclusion, your teacher's going to fail you. So at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us his conclusion. So it's like this wise king at the end of his life, he's looking back and he's going, okay, I would like to impart some things that I've learned, chasing after all these things. It ends up just being meaningless. But here's my conclusion. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. 
The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. But here it is, the conclusion of the matter. Here's the whole story. Here is now my final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commands, for this is everyone's duty. For God will judge everything that we do, including every secret thing, whether it's good or bad. So there I was as a college, a young, uh, well, actually a late teenager, and I was just struggling. God, why am I here? What is life all about? What's my purpose? And he took me through this, and he landed me on these verses, and he, it was as clear as his voice saying to me, it's, Gil, this is why you're here. It's actually quite simple. Fear God. Do what I say. For this is why you were created. And then it goes on to a verse and a thought that we often don't talk about. And the thought is this, that God is going to judge everything that we do. Um, So this thought, this idea, is not just in this verse in Ecclesiastes, but it's sprinkled throughout the Bible. Jesus talks about it. The Apostle Paul talks about it. That there's going to be a day when we are going to like stand before our Creator God, and we're going to, I guess in a sense, give account for our life. And in some ways, I think sometimes we, we think that God's going to like be this policeman and He's just going to be ready like to beat us down for all the bad things that we did. And I don't know if that's a true picture or not, but I actually think, because some of the Scriptures talk about God is going to reward us. He says, great is your reward in heaven. Uh, there's a whole pile of people that are going to enter into His presence and He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so I think maybe part of our life here is we're preparing our life for what life with Jesus in heaven is going to be like. I don't know if this is like a true good analogy or not, but before I was born, I spent approximately nine months in my mother's womb. I don't remember a whole lot of that time. In fact, I can't really think of anything that I remember during that time. But I do know this. I was developing. I was growing. Fingers, toes, heart. I was growing a personality. I was growing in my spirit. And there came a time when I was born this life. And (laughs) there was no going back. And now that I'm here, I don't remember a whole lot. In fact, I don't remember anything from that experience. But it was real. I know it was. I was alive then. But the life in the womb was preparing me for my life here on earth. And could it be that our life here on earth is preparing us for our future life with Jesus in heaven? And could it be that the relationship that we build here on earth is preparing us for the relationship that we're going to have with God in heaven. I don't know. Just something to think about. So back to that question. If I had a million dollars, what would I do? So 
I was wrestling with God about what to do with my life and what I should seek and all sorts of stuff. And as he was prompting me with this question, I thought back and I go, okay, God, if I had a million dollars, I would like devote my life to telling people about Jesus because that's, I think, what I need to do. And God was like, well, Gil, you don't need a million dollars to do that. You know, just trust me and do what I say and I'll provide. And so that's kind of the impetus that then sparked what I did with Youth for Christ for many years. And and really what I hope my life has been about is helping people see Jesus. And just as I wrap up here in the next few minutes, that's what I intend to do. I want to take our thoughts from fear God, keep His commands, and let's, let's point that to Jesus. So, I think we have a problem here in Western Canada. Well, Western, uh, Western all over the place, I guess. I think there's a sense that a lot of people are inoculated with Christianity. I'll say that again. I think there's a lot of people who have been inoculated with Christianity. And uh, my question here today is, are you inoculated with Christianity or are you infected with a passion for Jesus? And let me explain a little bit. So, I don't want to get into the whole vaccine debate because, no, we're not going there. But when you get vaccinated for something, you get actually infected with a mild case of whatever that is that they're vaccinating you for. And your body builds up a resistance to that disease. And that's the whole inoculation procedure. There's some of us who have grown up in the church, and it's all we've ever known. And, you know, you go to youth group, and you read in the Scripture, and it's just dead. You come to Bible study, and nothing's alive. And it's like, it, it just doesn't connect with you. There's people outside of the church who have tried it. You know, they might have gone to a meeting, they raised their hand, said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Didn't work for them. And now they're going like, this religion thing just doesn't work. Christianity doesn't work. God isn't there. He's not real. And they've just built up this wall, this protection against true faith in Jesus. So I think in a way, they've become inoculated with what the Gospel is all about. So the question is, how do you know if you're inoculated with Christianity or infected with a passion for Jesus. And there's a couple of things I have here. I'm visual, so I need to like picture this. So I created this picture. So up here, if there was a line or something like that where you cross over from death to life to being saved, that's what that circle is. And I don't know what that line may or may not be. We're not going to debate that. But... These people have just crossed over the line. So you could say like they've punched their ticket to heaven, you know, whatever. But the key question they're asking is, how far can I go? And I know like young people, they ask this question, so we're going on a date, how far can we go? Or people in their job, like they they know that maybe this isn't quite ethical, but so the question is, how far can I go but still keep my salvation? And that's the wrong question, okay? If you're asking that question, then I think you need to take another look and go, okay, what is going on in my life? The question we need to be asking is not how far can I go, 
What's the minimum I need to do to, in order to follow Jesus? But the question is, how close can I get? So if Jesus is represented by the cross, the question is, how close can I get to Jesus? So we're not looking behind, chasing after all those other things that distract us. We're focusing on Jesus and we're going, I just want to know Jesus. I want to get to know Jesus. I want to focus on Him. There's another way that you can know whether you're inoculated or infected. Jesus said it. He said, you will know the people by the fruit that they produce. Paul went a little bit further in Galatians. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And if you and your life are growing in those things, then you're moving towards Jesus. But if you and your life are not experiencing those things, then I think there's a warning flag going on. Wait a minute. What are you actually focusing on? Are you just trying to be safe to stay in? Or are you actually pursuing a life of discipleship with Jesus? As I wrap things up, there's a, a closing slide here. So, this is what I would hope that everybody would take home. This is what the message is all about. It's simply this. Don't chase after life, but pursue Jesus who gives life. Don't spend your life chasing after all the meaningless, pointless things in your life, but pursue Jesus who gives life. And this is actually one of the things that I like about what I do now with Camp Oshkidi is everybody, life is so busy, life is so crazy, we need time to pause. We need time to go with God in creation and just say, okay, God, what do you have for me? What are you going to speak to me about? And it's a great opportunity. And I would encourage you, whether you get to Oshkidi or another camp or another retreat someplace, Get away, stop the race, pause before God and just say, God, what do you have for me? Where am I going? So how do we do this? How do we not chase life but pursue Jesus who gives the life? Well, there's this hymn that a lot of you are going to know. It's trust and obey. And it goes, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it links back to the Ecclesiastes. It links back to fear God, keep His commands. So fear God is trusting God. Obeying God is doing what He says. And we're, we're called, Jesus calls us to a life of discipleship, not a life of belief. A life of discipleship is following His footsteps. So it's Trusting in who He is, but it's also on obeying what He says for us to do. Trust and obey. And so we're called to live a life of full surrender. And so what does that look like? Well, in a little bit, we're going to participate in communion. And just before Jesus went to the cross, He spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden, he was struggling with his heavenly Father, and he's going like, God, not my will, but yours be done. And there was stress going on. There was so much stress going on that he was sweating blood. 
But he said to his heavenly Father, not my will, but your will be done. And when Jesus taught us how to pray, in what's called the Lord's Prayer, he talks about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does a life of surrender to Jesus look like? I had this great tip, and I'm going to encourage you to think about this. But think about these words, your will be done. Every day this this week, before you go to school, before you go to your job, before you have that meeting, before you go play the sports game, before you go to the movie, before you sit down for supper with your family, before you come home after work, in every situation, just pause. And you could even like, God, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. So I've been busy speaking here a lot. I would just like to give everybody a moment just to pause. And so if you just want to bow your head, and I'm going to be quiet for like a minute. And the question is, God, what are you wanting me to do? God, what are you saying to me? Spend a minute and just think about that. So you can just remain bowed and while you're thinking about this, I just I need to give this opportunity because there could be somebody here and you've actually never surrendered your life to Jesus. You could be here and this is this whole concept is new to you. And it's like I've never surrendered to Jesus. I've never said to him, Thy will be done. And I would love to give you an opportunity to step into that today. And I don't know if that's you or not, but if it is, your hands could be sweating, your heart could be pounding. Jesus is working in your heart. And you're, you're just going, you know that there's a struggle going on and you need to release it. So, if that's you this morning and you want to release it, you want to surrender to God, you want to start following Jesus for the first time, I invite you to do that. You just surrender your life and you say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Your will be done in my life. And sometimes it's an easy decision just to think in your mind, and sometimes you need to like, have somebody bear witness to that. So if that's you here today, and, and that's something you want to do, just look up at me and just get my attention. If you need to wave, you can wave. But I'd be willing to bear witness to that decision. And then I'm just going to close in prayer.
All right. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for who You are and how You love us and that You sent Jesus to give us life to the full. And for these people who want to start this life with You, for these people who want to submit their life to You, surrender their life to You, and follow You, God, I just pray that right now Your Holy Spirit would invade their lives. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would just come upon them and just they would feel Your presence. And Your Holy Spirit would be drawing them to You and helping them do this. And God, I just pray that You would help them in this surrender process to be able to surrender their life to You and follow You. And God, for all of us, that's my prayer for myself. There's things that I need to set aside. Every day there's things that I need to surrender. Every day I need to say these words. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life. And so that's my prayer for all of us here. That we would live lives of surrender to Jesus. That we wouldn't be chasing after all the meaningless things in life but we would find true meaning in who You are in our relationship with You. Amen. If you entered into that relationship for Jesus for the first time, there's one more step that I think you need to do. I, bear, I bore witness to it, but you need to communicate this to somebody else. It could be a friend that you have. It could be a home group or a small group leader you have. It could be a pastor. Uh, or it could be me. I'll be up here after the service and if you just need to come and talk and pray. But you need to not only believe that Jesus died for you and you're going to follow Him, but you need to step out and act in obedience. Trust and obey. So There's no other way.